This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me coming to you live on tape from Vox Media headquarters in New York City. This is a very special pre- or post-Oscars episode, depending on when you listen to it. <laughs> it's a timeless episode. That person you hear laughing there is Allegra Frank. She's one of my colleagues from Vox.com. She's the associate culture editor there. And the quieter person you're not hearing talk yet, there you just heard her smile, <laughs> is Alyssa Wilkinson, our film critic. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having yeah, us. Thanks for having us. I want to talk to you about the Oscars. I want to talk about movies. I want to talk to you about the means of production and consumption and distribution, all of those things. Um, like I said, the Oscars are coming up. We want to talk a bit about what we're going to see, what we're not going to see, how that all came to be. But but I do want to make this something that you could enjoy even maybe on February 8th. Will be the day after? 10th. 10th. I'm not good with calendars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, should we start talking about Netflix or should we save Netflix for the end? Kind of, they're kind of always topic A, right? Yeah, they kind of are. They they have been chasing after movies now for several years, started off with no success. They are increasing both their output, mm-hmm. um, the kind of movies they're making, their yeah. ambitions, um, and, and now their critical acclaim. They had Roma up last year, did not win Best Picture. This year they've got two stabs at it. Uh, that's Marriage Story and The Irishman. I think last year there was this narrative that Hollywood didn't want Netflix to win an Academy Award for Best Picture. Yeah. So let's start there. Do we think that's still true? Do you think there's still anti-Netflix sentiment among Oscar voters? There definitely is. This is Um, Alyssa speaking. Yes. We'll figure out the voices as we go. (laughs) (laughs) The Academy is very large and still very old. Um, Just the median voter is still, I believe, like a 70-year-old white guy. Wow. But 70-year-old white guys watch Netflix. They do. But um, they—I don't want to, you know, generalize about 70-year-old white guys, but there is this feeling still among sort of industry standard people that um, Netflix is trying to disrupt the industry in ways that they don't like. On the other hand, Netflix joined the MPAA last year, so they're one of the big six now. That's the lobbying group. That's, well, lobbying industry. Trade. They do the yep. rating systems. Mm-hmm. They joined that following the Oscars last year. And also Netflix has worked hard this year, I think, to present themselves as the guardians of cinema. Um, for instance, in New York, they uh, took out that long-term lease on the Paris Theater, which right. was, you know, kind of a classic place that right. had so they, shut down. They, they've now bought two theaters, essentially, right? Or they, one in technically, LA. they right. haven't bought it, but yeah, essentially. And so they're trying they to say— They're funding two theaters where you can go see movies in real life. That's right. And, and so, Netflix movies, yeah, specifically. Netflix movies. It's a one-screen theater, at least, that Paris is. But, you know, people loved the Paris, and when it shut down, it was, it was sad. And um, New York has a great rep film scene, but the idea that, oh, well, you'll be able to go there and see the Irishman, you know, the latest Scorsese flick or whatever is something that I think has softened some people on Netflix. And, and, and just to catch people up, right, the the initial sort of fight between Netflix and Hollywood, if we can sum everyone up in Hollywood in one word, was about how movies were going to be distributed, right? Yeah, it's partly— or is, it, or is it an overall fear that Netflix is a tech company and they're throwing money around and something's going to happen and we don't know what it is, but we're uncomfortable with that? There's a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely some of all of that. Um, a big part of it is also um, the window between theatrical distribution and digital distribution. Um, Netflix initially said, we want everyone to see the movie at the same time. Mm-hmm. If We'll show it in theaters, but 
but we want the theater, we want the movie to come out in the theater at the same time you can stream it on your phone. Yeah. The theaters and, obviously said, hell no. Right. <laughs> and they've been softening on that, um, especially since they've been renting the screens. So I think that's been a big part of it. They've been in a fight with Cannes for a couple of years over this as well. And the French movie industry yep. is way more rigid about this. But in the U.S., there's definitely this feeling of like Netflix is going to wreck movies. Um, and now maybe they won't. So what about the super obvious counter to this, which is... Netflix is funding movies that aren't being made by Hollywood studios. You, the people who care about movies, should appreciate that. Particularly, right, we're talking about uh, The Irishman. That's, what, $160 million the story mm-hmm. is, supposedly. No other studio would take it. Netflix, for better and for worse, said, here's the money, Martin Scorsese, go make your movie. Mm-hmm. Right? If you If you are in Hollywood, if you like movies, isn't that just a clearly great thing? Right. I definitely think the accessibility that Netflix is providing— This is Allegra. It is. Yeah. <laughs> um, the sharp change from Alyssa's voice. Um, I think the accessibility that Netflix is providing is for the broader consumer so important, right? And mm-hmm. clearly the investment Netflix is making in these bigger films like The Irishman, as you mentioned, is not having any – it's not dampening the quality of these films. Mm-hmm. I can understand that being a potential fear for – the, the stalwarts and the more archaic people of the industry who believe in cinema as this pure art form, that, okay, Netflix is this primarily tech company. It has a platform. It's trying to promote itself. So putting these movies onto its platform is ultimately its own advertising, right? So that could inhibit good quality films, but it, it has not proven to be the case. So I'm generally... I, when you mentioned, Alyssa mentioned the Cannes and sort of Parisian film industry issue, I think that just kind of really hues to the idea of this is such a an archaic notion of film that is arguing against the Netflix distribution model. Yeah. So, so back to the Oscars. Uh-huh. Do we think that someone is willing to vote against a Netflix movie, that there's a protest vote, and that will actually affect how the Irishman and, and Marriage Story do? Yeah, I, I think so. I also, if you ever read those, um, you know, those like cranky oh, like roundtable Academy voter things where right. people anonymously talk about— A trade about, will anonymously— Yeah. Here's, and, a, here's a seven-year-old white guy to tell us what he thinks. Right. And they're, they're huge traffic jaws mainly because they're hate reads. Uh-huh. Um, and a lot of times I think people are trying to find a reason not to vote for a movie. I do think, like, if anyone in the entire world has a chance of overcoming anti-Netflix bias, it's Martin Scorsese. So I don't know. But um, certainly the day after the Oscars, if the Irishman in particular doesn't pull in enough votes to win anything, then people are going to attribute it to Netflix bias. So I have a question for Alyssa related to that. So I was looking at um, the Golden Globe nominations because I remember Netflix really dominated there. Mm -hmm. The Golden Globes aren't necessarily the best predictor for Oscars because they sort of are doing their own thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) notoriously. But Netflix was kind of shut out from the big categories. They had, I think, three nominees in the best drama category, and the top prize went to, was it? It wasn't Joker, right? No, it was 1917. Oh, my God. I was thinking it was Joker in (laughs) my nightmare world. Yes. Um, So it went to a non-Netflix movie. Mm -hmm. Do we see that as suggesting that Netflix doesn't actually bode as well of a chance going forward as we might think? I think a little bit. And the reason that really gave me pause, because I was expecting The Irishman in particular to do better, is that you can kind of buy a Golden Globe. (laughs) 
Um, you know, there's like 90-something people in the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, and you can just— and I know that— There's what, 8,000 voters in, in, something, in the, in the eight academy? Something, 8 or 9. Nobody knows exactly the number, but something like that. But you, I mean, can get, you can get everyone from the Foreign Press Association in one room and then give them watches or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> and they do. And Netflix, I know from experience, because I go through the whole awards season on the press side, they th- have thrown enormous amounts of cash at uh, their awards season campaigns. Um, and particularly at the Irishman, and very fancy parties, like nice swag. And so if they did that for the Hollywood Foreign Press, then it's surprising. Um, But also, the Golden Globes are very idiosyncratic. Mm -hmm. And the Academy Awards are too, but they're a little more predictable. I do want to talk about the the junkets and the campaigning, um, but I want to just back up one step and just talk about what the Academy Awards are and why they matter, why they don't matter. A lot of people are going to watch them um, this weekend, mostly because it's a fun television show with with stars. Um, I, it's I'm sure someone else has thought of this, but it's like a reality TV show mm-hmm. with the most famous people in the world, and you <laughs> never get to see that anywhere else. You know, Love Island doesn't have famous people on it, <laughs> um, so you get, so you get to see Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, and that's for a lot of people. That's that's it. Mm-hmm. Some people have rooting interest in a movie they like winning or a movie they hate not winning. <laughs> Why are you pointing at me? I, I'm just waiting for you to say Joker. <laughs> I also. It's implicit. <laughs> um, yes. And then there's you know there's a whole content industry which is going to create content around this. We're partaking in it right now, and that's a very meta conversation. But as people who think deeply about movies and culture and what it all means, how should we think about what the Academy Awards mean when it comes to the state of movies? Does it matter if they pick the wrong movie? Does it matter if they don't nominate a worthy movie? Uh, yeah, <laughs> it does. I just wrote. Who does it matter to? Well, it it um it matters to people who work in the industry predominantly, right? So, getting your movie or your performance or whatever nominated or winning an Academy Award, that's great. Like you, a you get into the Academy, um, which is an important thing if you get nominated, and b that means you have a really good chance at working again, <laughs> and working again is you know so that's there's real what financial stakes here for you as an employee. You as a, as a working person, obviously the movie themselves will, will get a boost of some degree by yes. being nominated and or winning. They get a box office boost usually. Um, as, if you're a small film and you get a nomination, it means people might actually see it because there are people who are completists. It's not the be-all, end-all Or just, by the that. way, it's going to be on a TV show that right. tens of millions of people are going to see. Yes, exactly. And, uh, other than that, they may not have heard of Jojo Rabbit. Sure, or it might get a... a distribution if it's a foreign film. It's not the end-all be-all. Like Brad Pitt has one Oscar to his name and it's for producing 12 Years a Slave. So it's not like you can't have a career if you didn't win an Oscar. But you do, you know, it's a good thing. It's something on your resume. And and there are lots of famously successful actors and actresses which don't, who don't win until the end, directors say. Yeah. Sometimes they get an award at the end of their career, sort of a makeup award. Martin Scorsese only has one Oscar. So it doesn't prevent you from working. Right. Um, But, you know, I, I, I listen to a lot of conversation about people getting very upset about the Academy. Sometimes it's about diversity issues. Sometimes it's yep. about you picked an old-style movie or this movie's too this movie's too abstract. And again, I love to talk about all this stuff, but I, it, it, it's a, I have a hard time sort of understanding why we should get whipped up about it, especially when, again, if you care about movies, they've been making bad decisions at the Academy Awards for, for years and years and years. I think the last time I got really upset was when Pulp Fiction didn't win and mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, Forrest Gump did. <laughs> well, it, and you have to remember, it's a massive voting body. Right. So it's sort of like a median opinion thing, which means it just it 
occasionally you get an outlier, but it tends to be the middle choice, which is why 1917 is probably going to win Best Picture. It is also interesting, just reflecting on, uh, I believe, a year ago when they were going to institute the Best Popular Film category. Mm -hmm. That kind of speaks to the notion that the Oscars doesn't even represent the general filmgoer's interest, right? Like, we don't really see a lot of big box office successes at the Oscars. You don't see superhero movies generally. Mm -hmm. You don't see really any action movies. Yeah, there are two movies that cleared $100 that are nominated for Best Picture, which are Joker and Ford versus Ferrari. You so. rarely see an animated movie. Like the things uh, the things that most people go to movie theaters, at least to go see, don't show up in the Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. So should they? I mean, the Oscars are not supposed to predict American taste. They're supposed to predict the industry or, or uh, be kind of a signal of what the industry thinks of itself. Like what do we think represents us this year? And most of them don't want... <laughs> you know, those other films, frankly, they don't like genre film to represent them. They don't see it as the pinnacle of achievement for the year, even though it might have been, you know, the biggest money right. for the year. Like, no one, I think, is surprised that Avengers Endgame wasn't nominated for Best Picture. Although they did send out screeners for They it. did. And it was it was really funny because they packaged them as if it was this prestige drama. It's very serious Gray cover. Yeah. There's 8,000 people in, in Hollywood, and, and, and if they're 70-year-old men, they've been around several blocks. Um, they know that, that, that what makes that town work is not art house films or whatever you call an art house film. Now, um, they all know sort of how the industry works. Don't they want to celebrate the most successful versions of, an industri- of that no, industry? No, because that movie already made them money, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it won already. Nobody's going to forget Avengers Endgame, I don't think. Um <laughs> So the thinking is more like, okay, well, what what do we think maybe didn't appeal to the largest number of people, but, you know, kind of represents the pinnacle of our craft? Because these are craft awards, right? So if we've coalesced around the idea that this represents what Hollywood thinks about itself, mm-hmm. can't we just say, all right, this is what Hollywood thinks about itself. They like 1917. Great. I didn't like it. I liked it. I actually liked it personally myself. Um, and then move on. It, it, it seems like we are freighting the Oscars with more mm. weight than this sort of prosaic definition we have here, which is this is what 8,000 people who make, make movies think is a good movie. I feel like the—I mean, there is— we know some of the people who are in the Academy, but mm-hmm. overall, I mean, that's such a massive voting body that it does feel like the sort of anonymous forum that is supposed to be representative of the larger interests. And even though, as Alyssa said, it's not supposed to be representative of the American person's best film or choice, top choice. Right, it's not a census. Exactly. It sort of, I think, becomes that for the people, the viewers. Like, we do have this really emotional investment in art in general, in our film choices. So then to see this gigantic voting body that we do not know, we did not elect, speak to this is the movie that everyone should pay attention to, it sort of then... We interact with it in this way of we have this attachment to that. What does this say about the validity of my attachment? Mm -hmm. And to go back to something I said before, I think um, 
the, the self-reinforcing nature of the Oscars, that if you win an Oscar, you're going to get work. That's why people get frustrated about things like a lack of diversity um, among the nominees, because it's just kind of a feedback loop where this person keeps getting to make movies because they've made successful movies. And it's harder for new voices to break in or for more diverse voices to break in because it's the same group of people all the time. And so there's movies where you know if you had Meryl Streep in your movie, like A, she's going to get nominated and B, your movie's going to get a lot of awards attention. But it's harder for a movie with maybe less familiar actors or people of color or like certainly female directors have had a hard time getting um, nominated and then people say well it's because they didn't make movies that were worth it which isn't necessarily true. Yeah I mean we could do many many hours on representation and why it matters why it doesn't matter Um, but I do think that that's a disconnect because you'll hear a lot of people complain Oscar's so white or you know uh, whoever says the congratulations to all the male nominees Mm -hmm. I think that's a recurring joke now Mm -hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot of folks who go well, I don't I don't care who made my movie and I see movies with all kinds of people in it and, and what are we upset about and again I think Alyssa by, by underlining that this actually is this is a financial decision for a lot of people mm-hmm. this is going to play into what kind of movie gets made what kind of actor gets to be on screen in the next movie and who gets the 160 million dollars and I will say Netflix to their credit are known for throwing a lot of money at people to do whatever they want with them mm-hmm. and uh, and that has included I can think of one female director specifically who did a Netflix movie who said her movie was at a different studio and she had to take it back from them because it was just stuck in development hell and Netflix was like here, you do whatever you want was with it. Was that Nicole Holof Center? It was, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love talking to her. She's great. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about money mm-hmm. and more Netflix in a minute. First, we're going to hear from a sponsor. Back here with Alyssa and Allegra. We've suggested that this is going to be a topic for uh, 17 minutes. Let's talk about the role of money in the Oscars. Um, I think if you are the kind of world-weary, savvy person who listens to Recode Media, you may realize <laughs> that these these movies are not just nominated purely on their merits. Um, there's a ton of work that involves getting them in front of voters and a ton of money, and I think Netflix has also now raised the stake on that as well. Alyssa, can you walk us through? You did a really good piece uh, last year sort of walking through the, the campaign. Yeah, it's very much like running a political campaign. Um, there's a lot of money, like $10 million can go into an Oscar campaign. For a single movie. For a single movie. Uh, usually a studio, well, often a studio will pick one movie. So like this year, Neon picked Parasite, even though it has other movies that c- it could have run. Um, and they throw money behind events, um, behind sending out screeners, of course, but also swag to voters, um, not just for the Oscars, but also for smaller awards that kind of lead up to that. So they want to create the primaries. Momentum. That's right. right. So in the same way that Iowa, Super Tuesday, like these things matter, um, for them it's like critics awards, the Golden Globes. So you've got teams of people putting out a campaign that's going to go multiple months. Mm -hmm. It's aimed mostly at a very small group of people, even though like if you're a civilian, particularly in Los Angeles, and you Mm -hmm. walk down every billboard as a four-year consideration billboard, Mm -hmm. a little bit of that in New York. Yeah. Um, So you're aware that this is going on, but this is really sort of micro-targeted at really a few thousand people. That's right. Yeah, they'll they'll pay to hold screenings. Um, They get like kind of disconnected celebrities to come in and host those screenings, which can be really interesting. Um, So so so-and-so famous person is hosting a screening of what? what, Which? La La Land. uh, I the producer told me you. 
know, Barbara Streisand hosted one of our early screenings, and that was a big deal because people would come because they she's wanted to see. She's not in the movie. She's not she's in not it. She's not a yeah. producer. In no way related to it. But they just said, would you do this? And she said, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, well, she saw the movie somehow, and mm-hmm. she said, I want to host a screening of it. And that was a big deal for them. Um, and, of course, that movie went on to win a lot of awards. Right. And then also <laughs> Harvey Weinstein uh, is responsible for— since about 1999 for having kicked off the modern version of the Oscar campaign, which includes things like oppo research. The negative campaigning or swift voting, right? Yeah. All of a sudden uh, you read a story or read several stories about how such and such movie isn't historically accurate. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. The Whisper Network, that was a really great detail in Alyssa's piece. It's so insidious. They'll just whisper. The example they gave was um, Shakespeare in Love, Mm -hmm. which was a huge upset over Saving Private Ryan in 1999. And they were whispering that, oh, only the first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan are good. So Harvey Weinstein and other industry insiders have such sway that they can even work so insidiously like that. Plant stories, call journalists. um, We recently saw some sponsored content on um, Variety, Variety, which is a major trade paper that was all about how great Joker is. It was like an eight-article package, and it's marked as SpawnCon, but people don't necessarily know that. Right. It was literally formatted as if it was a big feature package with bylines. It's very easily read. Is oh, this is just some great articles from Variety. And this now gets a little muddled, too, because now lots and lots of Me Too stories come out. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're connected to a prominent movie. And then there's a discussion like, well, is this a legitimate story or is this also part of the someone else's Oscar campaign? Everyone scratches their head. Yeah, there was a story that came out, I guess it was in December, about how— the person on whom Jennifer Lopez's Hustlers character was based was suing the movie or Lopez um, about, like, her representation in the film. And as soon as I saw it, I thought, oh, well, that's a that's a plant. And then I thought, who is this a plant for? Like, I don't even know at that point. So right. you start to play all those head games that you do when you watch a political campaign. And so this has been going on for a long time. Weinstein sort of, uh, uh, sort of, brought everything to a new level, and then Netflix has ramped it up, right? Just in terms of overall spending, in terms of what they'll throw at something? Yeah, other studios have been complaining this year about the amount of money that that Netflix has been throwing in. But also their movies are good, so it's, you know, (laughs) it's a little tricky. They are definitely some of the better movies in the race. Right. Um, I can definitely see that being a major issue for um, the film industry at large when they complain about Netflix disrupting, mm -hmm. because it does start to become a financial play. I mean, in that sense of Netflix as a streamer. Right, the same people who can spend billions of dollars and I think, what, they're going to make 95 movies this year, which is yeah, way, way more than a, a regular studio. <laughs> Original movies. The people who can who can fund that can also fund enormous marketing campaigns. I think they spent $1.8 billion on advertising last year. Yeah, it's... Mostly for Netflix, right? But they yeah. can throw a little bit of that towards mm-hmm. an Oscar campaign. Um, you mentioned, Alyssa, uh, Neon and Parasite. Parasite is, I think, the movie... Most people that I talk to are most excited about. They like the movie itself. They also like the story. You were talking in your story about how uh, these Oscar campaigns all need narratives. So in this case, you've got a Korean filmmaker. It'd be a big deal. And you also have a very interesting story coming out. Probably it will be out by the time you hear this podcast talking about the idea of what used to be called foreign film. Mm -hmm. What's it called now? Best International Feature Film. Okay, so that's a more polite way of saying it, but this, these are the movies you're probably not going to see in the U.S. for the most part, unless it's a parasite, which is very, very rare. Uh, you brought up something I'd never thought about, which is that each country is picking its own movie yeah. submission, which means usually 
depending on what kind of country it is, uh, they're making all kinds of different decisions. Can you can you tease that out for us? Yeah. So basically, the rules for this category um, have to do with the language that it's in. So it can't be predominantly in English. But um, the way they get nominated is that individual countries are allowed to have a selection committee of their own choosing that picks a movie that they want to represent them at the Oscars. And Which then is kind of weird anyway, because you can imagine is. like what the U.S. version of that committee would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and right, so you know, you can imagine. All right, well, the French people pick their movie, and the German picks their movie. What happens when it gets to Russia or mm-hmm. China or Iran? Who's making those decisions? Then? Right, and those countries um, are more secretive about who makes those. So, like France, you can go to the website and it tells you who they are. But yeah, it's it's industry professionals. They have to tell the Academy who's on the list, but they don't tell you like how the choices are made. And so, countries like China, Iran. Uh, Russia, they all are countries where um, sometimes they put filmmakers under house arrest, right, or or suppress them in some way if their films um, are, you know, Putin critical or whatever. Uh, And so, you know, like I was at Cannes in 2018 and two of the 20 filmmakers who had uh, films in the main competition weren't there because they were under house arrest. So you can reasonably assume that even though sometimes those genuinely are the best movies that country produces that year, they're never going to be part of that Oscar conversation. And so one thing that people will say is, well, can't those movies still compete in other categories? And yes, they can, but they usually don't. Do you guys want foreign films to have their own category? Do you want them to be competing with everybody else? Does it make sense to have a special bracket for non-U.S. movies? Well, in the piece and in general, it doesn't, the international feature category does not preclude films from competing in the other categories, right? Mm -hmm. We see Parasite, which is nominated for international feature as well as Best Picture. But the importance of that category is it does shine a light on underseen films that might not even have distribution in the U.S. from these smaller countries, Mm -hmm. which is definitely very important. But the siloing of international features or foreign features does kind of encourage this otherization that is troubling, I think. It's very rare to have a parasite, right, where it's it's probably going to win best— International foreign language In, film? Am I getting no, it right? No foreign no. at all, just international feature. International feature. Yeah. And it's a theoretical contender for other, mm-hmm. quote, real wars, which just did air quotes. Um, but it's very rare that that happens. Yes, it So is. do we think this is a one-off? No, I don't think it is. I do think one thing to note is that the Academy Awards are about Hollywood films, and Hollywood is America, right? So, you know, and England to an extent, but generally they're American. So it kind of makes sense. to. This is a recognition that filmmaking happens uh, in places other than America, and, like, that's good. We should remember that. Um, But I do think, you know, A, we will see more of these in the future, especially because Netflix seems really interested in expanding. More, more of movies that are made somewhere outside the U.S. Mm-hmm. and England that probably have subtitles mm-hmm. that we think also will get a reasonably large audience in the right. U.S. Yeah, and so there's so many great films in world cinema every year that people basically don't see because they never hear about them, even if they make it into theaters. So it is a positive thing. I mean, I think they also assume that it involves, one, subtitles, so there's reading, mm-hmm. two, foreign film, maybe it means it's French people smoking. Uh, you know, and, <laughs> right, we're and, very and biased. Walking on a beach <laughs> with a, with, with a, with a uh, emaciated skull person. Um but the point is, lots of people around the world like all kinds of movies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Parasite's a great movie. It's also a very accessible movie. Like, it's it's pretty straightforward Hugely. when you start watching it. It's, it. 
it has tricks and, and, and ideas in it, but you can definitely follow along. Right, yeah. And I mean, it, it's a notable film that uh, Korea has never actually had a film nominated in the international feature category. Which is let wild. Alone that makes no sense. The Bong, the filmmaker, has made just some of the best films ever that are also very accessible. Like right. The Host is like one of the best horror films I've ever seen. Um, and he was an early sort of auteur to get the big Netflix push with mm-hmm. um, Okia in 2017. I yeah, think? that's right. That was post Snowpiercer. So once he had made Snowpiercer, it was like, oh, he can he can do this, right? right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the category is important for a lot of reasons, but it is right now kind of being botched. There's this other problem with the foreign language category, like, sort of requirement, which means that countries that, um, like, there was an issue with a film from Nigeria this year that was disqualified by the Academy because it's mostly in English, which is the official language of Nigeria because of colonialism. So (laughs) a country like Nigeria would never be able to enter a film that most people in the country would be able to understand because it's in English. So there, there needs to be some change to this category right. to really represent what it is to be an international film in 2020. And it's especially disturbing the Nigerian example because Nollywood is what it's called, the Nigerian film industry, is one of the largest film industries in the entire world. Right. So if we're talking about international feature filmmaking, we should recognize these other outsized industries across the world. So we do see China show up mm-hmm. and... but. You know, Bollywood film, Nollywood film so rarely appear because there is that foreign language component regardless of this name change. Mm-hmm. Speaking of categories, uh, before we started recording, we were talking about The Irishman. And my producer, Zach, has seen an hour of it. I've, I watched the whole thing, but I watched it in chunks, some of it on my phone. Uh, I told Allegra that. Her I'm eyes so incensed. <laughs> But and then Alyssa, you lectured you lectured Zach and said you can't understand if you like the movie unless you watch the full movie. It's not like a TV show. I do think in a world where we're going to stream a lot of this stuff on whatever screen we're going to watch it on, and it's coming probably from Netflix and a handful of other places, and there's going to be a variety of different length of of entertainments. Quibi's going to do 10-minute episodes wherever long Quibi's around for. A cliche about Game of Thrones was that it was a 73-hour movie. Alyssa's <laughs> rolling her eyes. <laughs> if, if we can at least agree that there's lots of good stuff to watch, that the consumer now gets to sort of choose how they want to watch it and whatever increments they want to watch it on, what screen they want to watch it on, does it make sense to have a movie award show that's separate from the Emmy? Should it all just be called streaming awards? No, Alyssa's very upset about that. I mean, I do think we have, isn't there something called the streamies or something? Different thing, yes, (laughs) there is, but there is a streamies. Okay, well, in any case, I would make the case, and this has been a very difficult thing that I'm still mulling over, but that episodic storytelling and like cinematic storytelling, that's a bad word for it, but they are actually different things. They feel different. When you watch them, um, I think about them differently when I'm writing about them. So I do think there's always going to be value in keeping them separate. But I think we have a lot of work to do in the next five years or so in really defining what they are. Like Game of Thrones is episodic. That is there is that is not a movie. Even the Twin Peaks series that like people have been naming as one of the best. Right. David Lynch said it was an 18-hour long movie, but not. it's not. It's not. <laughs> there was the— uh, The uh, the return. The, no, but the, the um, O.J. Simpson ESPN. Right. Yeah. 
And the won, Academy won an Academy Award, right? And but it, it was released basically as seven episodes, mm-hmm. right? And it is, I think, episodic. I think we have to think a lot about how we're going to define that. And well, I don't uh, think— Why? Well, because I think that the way you write those is so different that people really specialize in them differently, and they're not the same thing. Like, it's not just chopped up into pieces. Um, and and keeping them separate um, gives both of those, um, I think, their due. I mean, I think the reason we'll have separate stuff is because it makes separate TV shows. Yes. Right? Right. Well, First but, and foremost, it makes more content for us. Sure, yes. And also we, you know, the way they're made is different too. But I, I think that— um, you know, one of the problems has always been that for a long time, film critics thought TV was like lesser. Yeah. And I think, I don't know that many film, I do know a few, but I don't know that many who would think that way anymore. But I think keeping them separate uh, gives it kind of the honor it's due. You know, TV storytelling is really important. Film storytelling is really important. And we have to think about what actually is the characteristics of those things. Right. I mean, yeah, to the episodic point, most TV episodes have different credits too, right? It's not so a film. There's a set body of crew. One of group talent. people made this thing exactly. So yeah. to even try and honor them in a similar fashion would be different. Right. So have different directors for different episodes, right. Right. writers for different and episodes. Even Steven Soderbergh never claimed that the Nick was a film. And if anyone should know movies, it's and he wrote, directed, and shot all of those episodes mm-hmm. himself. So if he, anyone should have called a TV show, a film, it would have been him, and he hasn't. Right. So I he would love had, to He talk also to had a choose-your-own-adventure oh, yeah. show. He's which, great. <laughs> which he, gets, he gets very upset if you call it that. He called it a branching narrative. Yes. And I don't know whether he would call that a movie or a TV show. Or I mean, I think those kinds of labels are not very important to him. He makes four or five of them per year. But, um, but I do think, you know, he's just— it, that that kind of way of thinking about storytelling is we'll important. Get, we had him here. We'll get him back, and we can have a discussion. He's a great interview. Um can we just talk a little bit more about Netflix and streaming in general and sort of, I think we, we talked at the start at the beginning about this apprehension of Netflix. What was it going to do to movies? I think a lot of their initial forays into movies were really off. Um, now it seems like they're getting the hang of it. So they make good movies. They make bad movies. They make Michael Bay movies. They make Martin Scorsese movies. It seems like if you're, you're us and we like to consume things and, and write about them and think about them and talk about them, that's just objectively good, right? What is what is the downside to the streaming boom we're going through right now for you guys? The, and don't don't tell me that it's hard to keep track of all this stuff, but that's a very specific a media one. Yes, it's that's like a very a specific media one. No one else cares. I think it's the, I mean, to the point of what we were just talking about of TV versus movies as episodic versus cinematic or a single narrative, it's the matter of consumption. There is this belief, and I think it's completely earned and fair, that there's an artistry to film that demands a certain kind of way of seeing it. The It takes the entire width of the screen, right? It's like widescreen versus television oftentimes before we had HD was full screen. I mean, And you're dwarfed by it. Yeah, yeah, like the aspect ratios are just literally different. So to watch a film on a different kind of screen, like a lower resolution phone, a small laptop, a tablet, you're not getting the intended experience that, you know, the theater will give you. And I I believe the same is true for these prestige television shows as Mm -hmm. well. You know, I have watched Breaking Bad on my phone before on an airplane, but that is a beautiful show, very, you know, intricately crafted. Even that feels wrong. So there is the 
you know, fair and excellent point of it. Netflix is making it more accessible for especially, you know, Peter, your dad, as we've talked about. And you can watch Irishman in chunks on your phone after, you know, your kids are playing video games or when you're putting them in bed. And that's amazing. But it does sort of diminish the import of the intended viewing experience. Yeah, I I think about it as I'm glad that people get to look at pictures of um, famous paintings that are in the Louvre in books because not everybody can do that. And so that's good. But it's different if you go there, right? It's you're you're finally seeing what the yeah, work of art is. It is and, generally better to see in the theater if you can. Yes, there's and always, not everybody There's always can. caveats. Right. Um, but I honestly, I don't think I would have seen The Irishman in a theater. Well, I don't and, think I would have committed to the four-hour experience. Mm-hmm. And the theatrical experience, I am well aware, is a bummer for most people. Like, people look at their phones or, or it's, like, sticky or the it's letterboxed wrong on the screen. I mean, there's a, theaters really need to step up their game if they want to make the argument for survival. But if you go to a good theater and you see a movie with an appreciative audience and that, you know, has been a growing trend, I think, among specialty theaters, like the Alamo, for instance, will kick you out if you take out your phone. That's a different thing. And people should at least know that they're not actually watching the movie. They're watching a copy of the movie. So the main the main problem with streaming is that it's too accessible to be snarky and, and uh, I mean, reductive about it. I mean, I don't it. like putting it that way because people already think film critics think yeah. everyone is, you know, populist or whatever. But I do think the main problem is that you're watching a copy of the film. You're not really watching the film. And so if you get too used to that and think it's a good substitute, then it's it will make you less appreciative of the experience when you have it. Do you think uh, Netflix has figured out to do uh, figure out how to make a certain kind of movie? Here, I'll, instead of making you answer this question, I'll, 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 <laughs> I'll say what I want to say, which it seems like Netflix has figured out how to do the marriage stories of the world. Indie movies, seems like you can get Nicole Hollow Center or the like. Who made who made Marriage Story? Noah Baumbach. Noah Baumbach, and they 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 would still prefer to make movies that show in movie theaters first, but they'll do it. They get it. They'll make it, and those seem it seems like those transfer pretty well. Mm-hmm. And when you see a Nicole Hollow Center or a oh my god, my brain is broken. <laughs> Noah Baumbach. Noah Baumbach movie <laughs> on Netflix. It looks like one you would have seen in the theater two years ago. List is making. I think Bombback looks a little different, but okay. that's just me. You'd, um, yeah. <laughs> but when I watched Triple Frontier, mm-hmm. which was yes. supposed to be as a studio movie, and um, whatever the Michael Bay movie was, Six saw, Underground. Six Underground, which <laughs> I, don't I also know why did I watch that. a lot of my phone, <laughs> and you guys will not be mad at me about that. It seems like they're still not quite the same as like the best version of the the cinematic. Uh, the the traditional theatrical release. Am I, am I imagining that? Is there something Netflix isn't getting there? No, I mean, or, Netflix has to compress basically the digital side of it, right, to get the image to you. So the image is actually different. Yeah, uh, yeah it is. And of course, depending on what you're looking at and what the specs are of the screen and the way it's, you know, how good your TV is or whatever, you're you're not seeing the same thing necessarily. So you think it's literally a technical issue that, that makes getting... That movie to me, but they're, I mean, they do a fine job of getting me the Avengers movies. Right. right? I mean, it's certainly partly, uh, you're, you are physically in, they cannot show you what they would have shown you in a movie theater, especially with a movie that was intended, you know, really to be intricately shot. 
And um, films films that are shot on film, yeah. too. Films right. on film, right? Like, they're often bandied about, of, oh, this is on 70 millimeter. Right. The manual material aspect is so different. You can't replicate the actual film strip I did not all. expect to get a technical answer to this question. <laughs> I thought, well, yeah, then they haven't brought in the right people who do the development, or they haven't, they're only getting sort of the Scorsese's when the Scorsese's have no other option, and that's... You're, you're not getting, you know, Christopher Nolan is not making Netflix movies. He's making— <laughs> Christopher Nolan will never he's do making, it. <laughs> he's making Christopher Nolan movies. Yeah. And, and it's it's always going to look different than a Netflix movie. But I don't really know why there should be. It seems like if you throw enough money at it and enough people, you'll eventually—it's going to look the same. But there are a lot of—I <laughs> see so many movies, most movies I see in a theater, um, I just think are not very good and look bad. And so there's so many movies like that that I don't—I, you know— it, so much is dependent on kind of how it's shot and who shot mm-hmm. it and all that kind of stuff that lots of these, I I think to myself, I don't know why this isn't a straight-to-Netflix movie. But to that point, Peter, of Netflix is picking up the Mard Scorsese's when no one else wants mm-hmm. to, I do agree that I'm trying to picture a future in which Mard Scorsese would want to make that Netflix movie first hand. I mean, obviously, Netflix has proven that it can afford the bigger budget, which is great for Scorsese or smaller filmmakers who want to get more money than a normal studio. Or Or Adam Sandler. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Adam Sandler, a riskier project that a traditional studio would never want to put up money for. Yeah. But we are still so, I think, enamored of clearly film as a tradition, cinema, that I do wonder how long it will take for most directors to even consider that before they go to, you know, a Paramount or a Disney. Right. Yeah, and a lot of what they're making, they might prefer to go first to a big screen. But Netflix making this big screen option like a viable thing in film-loving cities, um, if that spreads even a little more, I think it could be— it could be something that would coax some people. You're never going to get Christopher Nolan because Christopher Nolan doesn't need Netflix. He's the only household name that people <laughs> will go see his movies just because he made it in America. But you'll get a lot of other people, you know. You're not going to get Quentin Tarantino, but you're going to get other guys who people like. Right. By the way, I I did watch the Quentin Tarantino cut of was The Hateful Eight, oh, yeah. which was such a ripoff <laughs> that he did to me. Um, but I'll, I'll take that up with personally. him. For yeah, he just me, showed me the same movie with like four <laughs> different title cards. Yeah. Um, let's bring it back to the Oscars. Um, this is the part when this won't be as useful if you're listening to it after the Oscars. But um, what movie do you guys want to see win Best Picture? Allegra first. I feel like Alyssa and I, I don't want to spoil anything or make assumptions, but I think we're going to be on the same page. Go. It's really hard for me to choose one, but I'm going to choose Marriage Story. I would love to see Marriage Story win. Yeah. I would love to see Little Women win. I have no, absolutely no delusions that either of them are going to win. Mm -hmm. Of the ones that I think could win, Parasite would be top of my list uh, for a lot of reasons. One, because it's great. um, And two, because I think it deserves recognition. And then three, just because it'd be awesome for it to be the first foreign film to win the the Oscar. Who do we think is going to win? 1917. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, there's a decent outside first. chance it could be Joker, too. So we're all... I really agree. I feel like it's going to either be 1917 or Joker. Joker has the most nominations, and I know that 
largely is because of technical categories, but it really has been gaining You guys esteem. will be very excited if Joker wins because there's like another week of content. Right? Oh, yeah. no, I've written so many words on <laughs> No, Joker. I'm excited for the page views. Alyssa, <laughs> oh, get yeah. ready. I'm um, so tired of it. One last bonus Oscar question. This is the second year they've gone without a host. Yes. Last year that was an accident, basically. <laughs> they picked Kevin Hart and they had to it was unpick an him. <laughs> I get that the host role is sort of an old-fashioned role, and also that was traditionally less sort of a David Letterman or a Johnny Carson or Jimmy Kimmel, someone of that ilk, usually a male stand-up, who had a TV talk show. Mm -hmm. And it's a specific skill set. Do we think the show is better with that person, or do we think it's better just having people walk up and deliver their lines and show a movie clip? Well, watching the Golden Globes this year, which did have Ricky Gervais back as a host— it reminded me that the host is honestly, it does feel like a, you know, staid tradition now that we really don't need. It doesn't provide much. Of course, there's a monologue. It does give that sort of late night feel, that wraparound, that sort of grounding. But I think <laughs> fairly attention spans are so short now. Award shows are so long now. We don't need that extra set dressing. It doesn't feel essential anymore. No, I agree. I, I'm not surprised that ABC, which is owned by Disney, just wants to not have a host in order to cram in as many product tie-ins as it yeah. can, which it will do. Um, but, yeah, who? I don't know. Like, if I wasn't personally obligated to watch the Oscars because it's my job, I wouldn't watch it except I might be intrigued to see, like, who's going to come out next. Um, so that element of, like, surprise and interest. Right, so you care about the people winning the awards and who's giving out the award, the monologue. Maybe you like it, maybe you don't. It's, it's more not. fun to see a variety show for me. And also know? when you're watching clip form, right, which a lot mm-hmm. of folks are going to do, you're probably not going to be seeing the monologue. You're going to be seeing someone's funny acceptance speech or someone's someone tripped going up to get the award or right. something funny. There's moments, of course, I'm thinking now of Ellen's big selfie that she did when she hosted. Um, I think it was the year 12 Years a Slave one, so 2014. Yeah. That was that was exciting, and she you know she was hosting, yeah. so there was a big part of we had established a rapport with Ellen as viewers. So those can be fun, but right, you know Jennifer Lawrence tripping on the steps up to get her award, or the infamous uh, La La Land accidentally being crowned Best Picture. That had nothing to do with whoever hosted. Yeah, who even I barely remember who hosted. I have right? no idea. Yeah, I don't think there's really a great. Um, a figure who would want to host who needs to host anymore um, for their career. Yeah, and or, or put it another way, is there someone who, if they were hosting, you would go, oh. John Mulaney. I'm oh, more interested yeah. in watching, yeah. John oh, Mulaney. John, John Mulaney may be the only person on the earth. That's that what makes be. the Independent Spirit Awards really fun, actually, yes. which is a great award show, in my opinion, yeah. honoring just those smaller films held the day before the Oscars. And they have a group of people like John Mulaney and Nick Kroll doing the yeah. MC they have job. really fun hosts. Mm-hmm. Okay, so watch that, then watch the Oscars, then come back and re-listen to this podcast, see how we did. Mm-hmm. Alyssa, Allegra, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks to you guys for listening. We will see you next week.